need to make sure that over-the-counter birth control is available. You can just go to your pharmacy and purchase it. With abortion now banned in many states, one senator says it's time to make birth control accessible for more people. For Sunday, May 21st, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sarah McCammon. Nearly two decades ago, two men of color vanished on the same Florida road. Now investigators are taking a closer look at the case and a white sheriff's deputy. He will be subpoenaed to be deposed and give sworn testimony for the first time to answer all the questions. And NPR's Rachel Martin speaks with Simran Jeet Singh about learning from Sikh wisdom. So many of the assumptions that we make about one another are born out of a closed offness in our culture. By opening ourselves up, we can really start to see one another's humanity. First, the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy says he had a productive phone call with President Biden after their staffs hit an impasse on debt limit negotiations. As NPR's Barbara Front reports, the two leaders will meet in person tomorrow to continue discussions on how to raise the debt limit. Negotiations between the president and speaker's staff broke down on Friday and over the weekend, but McCarthy told reporters staff would resume talks Sunday evening. Our teams are talking today and we're setting to have a meeting tomorrow. Um, That's better than it was. President Biden is flying back from the G7 in Japan. McCarthy said the pair agreed to meet in person on Monday afternoon. This comes as the nation gets closer to a possible debt default. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has repeatedly said the U.S. could run out of money to pay its bills by June 1st. Barbara Sprint, NPR News, the Capitol. Ukrainian leaders say a key city in the east has not fallen to Russian forces, despite the Kremlin's claims of victory. NPR's Joanna Kisses reports from Kyiv that Ukraine's president addressed the battle while attending the G7 summit in Japan. President Volodymyr Zelensky told reporters that Russia has not completely taken over Bakhmut, but months of fighting have destroyed the city. He compared the damage in Bakhmut to the photos that he saw of Hiroshima in 1945, after it had been decimated by a nuclear bomb. General Oleksandr Sirsky, who leads Ukraine's ground forces, told reporters that his soldiers control, quote, an insignificant part of the city. But he added that Ukrainian forces have advanced on the outskirts of Bakhmut and are getting close to what he called a tactical encirclement of the city. Meanwhile, a spokesman for Ukraine's Eastern Command told NPR that there are no plans to retreat. Joanna Kakissis, NPR News, Kyiv. Sudan's warring sides have agreed to another week-long ceasefire. But as NPR's Aya Patrani reports, it doesn't go into effect until late tomorrow, and previous ceasefires didn't hold. The Sudanese Armed Forces and the Paramilitary Rapid Support Forces agreed to the seven-day-long ceasefire in Jeddah on Saturday in talks mediated by the United States and Saudi Arabia. Both warring sides have promised to facilitate the passage of humanitarian aid, restore essential services, and withdraw their forces from hospitals. Washington and Riyadh say it's well known that previous ceasefires weren't observed, but they say that this time the conflicting parties are backing a ceasefire monitoring mechanism. Aya Botrawi, NPR News, Dubai. An earthquake with a preliminary magnitude of 5.5 struck off the coast of Northern California this morning. There are no immediate reports of injuries or damage. You're listening to NPR News from Washington.
This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Josie Guarino. More than 100 screenwriters and union members protested Boston University's commencement today for featuring Warner Brothers president and CEO David Saslov. As WBUR's Walter Wuthman reports, many graduating seniors and their parents supported the strikers. The protesters marched and chanted outside the commencement ceremony. Boston screenwriter Gary Wolf said he hasn't worked since the strike began earlier this month. I don't have a paycheck coming in, and uh, instead of sitting at my typewriter, I'm holding a sign and walking around on uh, Commonwealth Avenue in Boston. Maura O'Gara of Quincy was there to see her daughter graduate, but said she supported the writer's cause. It is slightly uncomfortable, but I really feel comfortable with the process. I'm very happy that people are able to... Uh, protest uh, peacefully. BU President Robert Brown told the student newspaper it's not the school's policy to get involved in a labor dispute by disinviting a guest speaker. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. Supreme Court Justice Kentaji Brown-Jackson also received an honorary degree from Boston University today. You were fully prepared to join the legions of other lawyers across the country who are doing the work of promoting the rule of law and modeling civil interactions throughout this challenging time. The Supreme Court Justice addressed the graduating class of the BU Law School. The rain yesterday triggered sewage to overflow into Boston Harbor. The Boston Public Health Commission is warning people to avoid three sections of the inner harbor for 48 hours. People driving on Route 1 and Route 95 south of the city should be prepared for more traffic than the usual Sunday afternoon backups. That's because Taylor Swift fans are making their way to the singer's final show at Gillette Stadium in Foxborough. It's 5.06 in the forecast. Clear skies tonight. Temperatures in the mid-50s. Sunny skies for tomorrow. Highs in the low 60s. Right now we have 72 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sarah McCammon. It took Larissa Adams and her husband a long time to get pregnant. And when she did, she had a miscarriage. And we thought that was going to be the end of it and that we would get pregnant again. And what ended up happening was that we spent the next four or five years getting pregnant regularly and then miscarriage after miscarriage after miscarriage. Her doctors needed to intervene to complete each miscarriage. Adams would take mifepristone and misoprostol, the two drugs that are used together for miscarriage management and for abortions. After a number of miscarriages, Adams was able to conceive a single viable embryo through IVF. By sheer luck, I don't know. I've always wondered, I'm like, are we the luckiest people in the world or have the worst luck? But uh, it's stuck and now we have a three-year-old and she's totally healthy. NPR's Selena Simmons-Duffin and Becky Sullivan spoke to a number of people about why they took mifepristone. Some said mifepristone gave them a sense of control, like Michelle Brown, who found out she was pregnant while planning her wedding. She says she was a little bit panicked at first. But then, after doing more reading and thinking, we we then got pretty excited, actually, about the pregnancy. Um, And then we found out that it was not working out. Brown had started to miscarry. Her doctor had suggested waiting for the bleeding to begin. Brown was living in New Orleans at the time and working at a university about an hour away. 
Her commute took her across long bridges, over swamps and lakes, areas where it would be hard to pull over. Every time I had to commute to and from my university, I just had all of this, like, dread, essentially, because I was, like, really afraid, like, what if it happens now, right? Like, the cramping and the bleeding. Brown went back to her doctor to get mifepristone and misoprostol and took them in the comfort of her home with her fiancé by her side. Since then, they've married, and they now have two kids. Dawn, we're only using her first name because she fears family and professional repercussions, had an extremely complicated first pregnancy. She had severe preeclampsia, a condition with symptoms that include high blood pressure and can endanger both the mother and the fetus. Her daughter was born premature at 29 weeks and spent months in neonatal intensive care. Dawn ended up quitting her job. You know, I spent most of my time in that year, like, trying to keep her alive, taking her to different doctor and specialist appointments. She learned that she was pregnant again when her daughter was less than a year old. I knew in that moment that it would be physically, emotionally, mentally, like, devastating. It was an agonizing decision. But Don decided to get a medication abortion at Planned Parenthood. Honestly, I feel like it saved my life. I really feel that way. These are just some of the stories of those who wrote to NPR giving their perspective on mifepristone. Mifepristone is at the center of a court case that could make its way to the Supreme Court, and here's why. Last November, a group of abortion rights opponents sued the Food and Drug Administration, arguing that the FDA should never have approved the medication more than 20 years ago, and now they're seeking to take the drug off the market nationwide. The lawsuit also challenges recent rule changes from the FDA that have expanded access to mifepristone, including allowing abortion pills to be dispensed by mail. Recently, attorneys gathered in New Orleans at the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals to argue the case. Here's Deputy Assistant Attorney General Sarah Harrington, who's representing the FDA. She took questions from Judge Corey Wilson about whether FDA's changes, the ones that made prescription mifepristone available through mail-order pharmacies, causes more problems. For instance, if someone's abortion is not complete after 14 days. Those people will go back to their doctor and discuss with their doctor. Not if they didn't get it from a doctor. I mean, the FDA's relaxed the requirement that the provider even be They'll a doctor. They'll go back to their provider and discuss with their provider. who Nurse, doesn't... midwife? Yes, and discuss with their provider the next step. But even in that small population... Mail-order pharmacy? Mail-order pharmacy is not the prescriber. I mean, it just strikes me. The U.S. Supreme Court has put a hold on any changes to access to mifepristone for a period of time as the case plays out. So currently, the drug remains available in states where abortion is legal. This comes in the aftermath of the overturning of Roe v. Wade last year, and many people are worried about ongoing efforts to restrict abortion and other reproductive rights. Meanwhile, one U.S. senator is trying to make it easier for people to prevent unwanted pregnancies in the first place. It is a healthcare decision, it is an economic decision for women, and women want and have the right to make this decision on their own. That's Washington Senator Patty Murray. Birth control pills could soon be available over the counter after a Food and Drug Administration advisory panel recently recommended allowing them to be sold without a prescription. More than 100 countries allow access to birth control pills over the counter. The U.S. is not one of them. And Washington Senator Patty Murray says it's important that they not only be available, but also affordable. When and if that day comes, Murray wants to require insurance companies to cover the pills free of charge. She introduced legislation to that effect a few days ago. Senator Murray joins us now. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Good to talk to you all. 
As you know, we are coming up on the one-year anniversary next month of the Supreme Court decision that overturned Roe v. Wade. Many states since then have implemented abortion bans, and there have been more proposed in recent months. How is that reality shaping the conversation around birth control? Well, it's having a tremendous impact. Uh, Women in many states today, because of the decision by the Supreme Court, are really worried about their access to be able to have birth control pill as a way of making sure they don't become pregnant because in their states, they won't have access to abortion care. I disagree wholeheartedly with the Supreme Court decision. We need to make sure that over-the-counter birth control is available. The FDA, which is the agency that approves drugs, now has an advisory board with 17 members that uh, unanimously has said that birth control should be available over the counter. So you don't have to go to a doctor. You don't have to get a prescription. You can just go to your pharmacy and purchase it. They have to go before the full FDA, and we are awaiting that decision with bated breath. Um, But because they had a 17 to nothing advisory board, we are hopeful that that will occur and occur soon. That is a great step forward for women today to be able to make their own health care choices. Yeah, I want to break this down a little bit. You talked about the, the FDA process. So just remind us exactly where things stand right now with over the counter birth control. Well, FDA has a process to approve drugs that go on the shelves in drugstores everywhere for all of us to purchase. And that standard is that it is safe and it has efficacy, meaning that if you take it, it's safe to take and that it works. So they have an advisory board that looks at any requests that come to them. And uh, uh, some of the birth control uh, manufacturers have brought forward a proposal to have these over the counter. Their experts, their scientists, their researchers all look at this and um, do an in-depth decision uh, and then vote on whether FDA should consider having it over the counter. That first step, the experts uh, advisory panel has now voted 17 to nothing that that should be available over the counter. The next step is FDA has to take it up as the full FDA, uh, make that decision. And we are really hoping that that comes sometime by the end of this summer. And help me understand a little bit more how your bill would work. I think a lot of people may assume that health insurance automatically covers birth control. The Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, as it's known, already requires many insurers, most insurers really, to cover contraception. Why is your bill necessary? Well, under the ACA, we said that insurance companies had to pay for all birth control for women without a copay so that women could afford it. Uh, Now that we are seeing that it may become available over the counter, we want to make sure that insurers still pay for it because it is costly and it is part of your health care coverage. So it isn't just prescription only so that women can afford it. Look, this is a great step. If FDA approves this and women can go to the drugstore and purchase it without having to have a doctor's appointment or anything else, but it will only be available for some women if it is not covered by insurance. The cost can be prohibitive. So we're making sure that it falls within that category of this is what insurance companies have to pay. We are seeing daily right now how difficult it is for Congress to make any headway on critical issues. Do you think this bill, quite frankly, has any chance of becoming law? Well, I think we're all aware of what Congress is right now, and it will be an uphill battle. But if if they follow the science and we listen to the FDA 
and we look at the decades of precedence and research, there really is no denying that the birth control pill is safe and it's effective. American people know that. They overwhelmingly support birth control being accessible and affordable. And I hope that Congress listens. You have some Democratic co-sponsors for this legislation, but what are you hearing from your Republican colleagues? Are you sensing support for that argument that now in a post-Roe v. Wade environment is the time to make birth control more accessible? Well, I would like to tell you that the rhetoric matches the reality of how many of these members of Congress are doing in terms of the post-Roe world and following the words that they say. So far, I'll just tell you the reality. We do not have any members, Republican members, supporting this right now. So speak up, speak out, let them know. I don't think this is a partisan issue. And just one last question. Why is access to birth control pills over-the-counter important? When there, you know, there are already other options like condoms that are available over the counter and many other options available through healthcare providers. What do you see as the impact of this kind of access? Access for birth control, as every woman and most men understand, is extremely important for families, for women to be able to make the healthcare choices that work for them. It is a healthcare decision, it is an economic decision for women, and women want and have the right to make this decision on their own. That's why birth control is so important. It's why it's so important that it's easily accessible and it's so important that it is affordable. So all women, uh, no matter where they live or how much money they have, affordability is not a deterrence for them to get the basic health care that they deserve. Washington Senator Patty Murray, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. You're listening to 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Josie Guarino. The time is 518. Coming up at 6, it's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Stanhope Framers, Back Bay and Somerville, celebrating 51 years of handmade museum-quality frames through sustainable practices. StanhopeFramers.com. And Zoo New England, with their Zootopia Gala June 10th, supporting the Franklin Park and Stone Zoos and their mission to inspire care and action for wildlife. ZooNewEngland.org. We're looking at clear skies tonight, mid-50s. Right now we have 72 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include Huntington Theater. Just announced, don't miss Huntington Artistic Director Loretta Greco's first season in Boston, featuring seven shows, including a musical and a reimagined classic. Season ticket packages available now starting at just $156. Learn more at HuntingtonTheater.org. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy talked about the debt ceiling by phone this morning as Biden flew back to the U.S. from the G7 summit in Japan. The two will meet in person tomorrow, but their staffs are meeting today. 
Russia claims it's taken the Ukrainian city of Bakhmut, seen a fierce fighting in Moscow's nine-month war. But Ukraine's president says Russia hasn't completely taken over the city, which has been destroyed in the shelling. Thousands have died in the fighting. And the NAACP has issued a travel advisory for Florida, joining two other civil rights groups in warning tourists that under Republican Governor Ron DeSantis, the state is openly hostile to African Americans, people of color, and LGBTQ. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Plymouth Gin Distillery. Plymouth Gin is imported from England's southwest coast, distilled using a blend of seven botanicals, including juniper berry, coriander seed, and citrus peel. Plymouth Gin since 1793. And from Progressive Insurance, Progressive is looking for dedicated and forward-thinking individuals to join their growing team. More information, including application, at Progressive.com careers. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Sarah McCammon. This is the time when we get to share a podcast we love from the NPR Network. The Last Ride from WGCU Public Media and the USA Today Network Florida looks at the disappearances of two young men of color. Felipe Santos and Terrence Williams each vanished three months apart on the same road in Naples, Florida, nearly 20 years ago. They were both last seen with the same white sheriff's deputy, a man named Stephen Calkins. The deputy, who's since been fired, said he gave the men rides to Circle K stores, stories that could never be corroborated. Calkins denies any wrongdoing. He's the only person of interest, but he's never been charged. In fact, no one has. These unsolved cases gained renewed attention five years ago when two high-profile figures held a press conference with Marcia Williams, the mother of Terrence Williams. Journalist Janine Zeitlin hosts The Last Ride and picks up the story. Filmmaker Tyler Perry and notable civil rights attorney Ben Crump came to Naples in 2018 for a press conference. Crump has represented the families of Trayvon Martin, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd. The presence of Perry and Crump and the resulting media attention was a huge victory for Marcia. Early on, she had begged the press to cover these cases. We're here to announce that we are filing a civil wrongful death lawsuit where he will be subpoenaed and he will be made to come to be deposed and give sworn testimony for the first time to answer all the questions that Marcia Williams has for him. This lawsuit is going to formally say what people have been informally saying, and that is that he intentionally murdered Terrence Williams and Felipe Santos. Finally, someone had said out loud what so many people believed, but what Stephen Calkins has always denied. These two young men disappear off the face of the earth. And the last person to see them live was this sheriff's deputy. And his stories were so inconsistent, so unbelievable. And even though he had all those inconsistencies, there were no charges followed. Calkins is a person of interest in the cases. The only person of interest, according to the Collier County Sheriff's Office. 
No criminal evidence has been found implicating Calkins. Yet, he was fired from the sheriff's office after lying and changing his story about his interactions with Terrence. Crump said during the press conference that a judge could compel Calkins to talk as part of the civil suit. Calkins had stopped talking to investigators about the cases more than a decade ago. Maybe the lawsuit would bring the answers Marcia Williams deserved. Crump turned it over to Tyler Perry. Good morning. I really don't want to be here in this moment. I wish none of us had to be here in this moment. This has got to bother you. If you are a decent, human, kind person with a soul, I don't know how you can sit and not be upset that these two people, black, white, Mexican, nutty matter, would be put in the back of a sheriff's deputy's car, someone we are supposed to trust, put in the car and then they disappear. I don't know anyone who that would not move unless you just have a heart of stone. Then, Perry announced he was offering a $200,000 reward for tips. And he moved on to address an ugly media pattern. Missing white women get way more coverage than missing men and missing people of color. I hesitate to say this, but it's, it's so true. When somebody goes missing and they are a blue-eyed blonde woman, it's all over the news. This woman has been struggling privately for many, many years just to get attention. No one would even give her attention. This is a good place to note. I'm blonde-haired and blue-eyed. And I recognize that the fight for attention these families have waged would never happen to my family if I went missing. I saw what media bias looked like in my own community, my own newsroom. It took even longer for the cases to make a ripple outside of Naples, as Perry told it. I had a reporter to tell me, an actual reporter from a major network, when I called trying to get attention, saying, well, the victims aren't sympathetic. They aren't sympathetic. Those are the exact words that were said to me. So they didn't want to run the story. But you have the power in here to help the story get out. Honestly, I was surprised that a reporter for a major network would be so blatant in their indifference. And maybe this cuts to the heart of what went wrong. Felipe and Terrence weren't initially seen as victims. Host Janine Zeitlin and journalists Ryan Mills and Melanie Payne spent years following the two cases. We're going to play you another portion of episode one now. This focuses on the case of Felipe Santos, a young immigrant from Mexico who disappeared after a minor traffic accident. Deputy Calkins said he gave Santos a ride to a nearby gas station. Santos was never seen again. Here's host Janine Zeitlin. Felipe was 23. He had been working in the United States a few years and sending money back to his family in Oaxaca, Mexico. He was a farm worker and also worked construction, where the pay is better. Felipe lived with his family in Immokalee, an immigrant-rich farming town that supplies southwest Florida with labor. About 40 miles separate Immokalee from Naples, yet the differences are stark. In Immokalee's downtown, roosters meander through parking lots of Latin grocery stores. In downtown Naples, you can throw a rock and hit a Rolls Royce. In Immokalee, you see a lot of people riding bikes because they don't have driver's licenses. And many don't have licenses because they're undocumented. Felipe did not have a license, and he was undocumented. The morning of October 14, 2003, Felipe was driving a 1988 white Ford Tempo on Immokalee Road, which connects Immokalee in the east to North Naples on the Gulf Coast. Felipe's brothers, Jorge and Salvador, were in the car, too. They were concrete workers. South Florida was in one of its many construction booms. There were plenty of jobs to go around. The sun had just started to come up. It was before seven. In the lane next to Felipe and his brothers was Camille Churchill. She was headed to her job as a security guard at a gated community, which are plentiful here. 
She was driving a white Mazda protege, according to records. He came over without realizing I was passing him. And uh, he con- made contact with me. I made contact with the next car. My car was spinning out. That's Camille in a 2019 interview with Melanie and Ryan. He was acting like he was going to flee. So I pointed at him and said, go to Green Tree Plaza. And so he did. And we get out of the car. He offered me money. I said, no, I want this on record because it's, I've been in a lot of accidents and most of them are my fault. And this one wasn't. Nobody was hurt, but Camille wanted the crash on record for insurance. She called the police. In sheriff's records, it says the caller, quote, chased the Mexicans. They waited for the police. Deputy Stephen Calkins arrived on the scene. First thing he says, what happened? I said, you know, we're in an accident. And, and he just was shaking his head saying, I'm really, really getting sick of this shit. And I, I figured he meant the same thing that I was frustrated about. Immigrants driving with no license insurance. And it's not just immigrants either. It's, I've had a boyfriend that didn't have a license. He drove all over the place. And it's just, it happens a lot in Florida. Ryan pressed Camille for more details on how Calkins reacted. I mean, he said he was friendly with you. He was professional with you. Did you see any change in the demeanor when he was dealing with, with, with Felipe and his... Think, not really, no. But what she said reminded me of something I had seen in Calkins's personnel file. The exact date of the report is unclear, but one of his performance reviews noted that Calkins had received counseling around 1999 from a superior for, quote, his unprofessional behavior toward citizens. Camille said that Calkins did another thing that she found odd. There was something strange, but I don't know if you have it in your notes, but he took us for a reenactment of the car accident. No, that, this is the first I've heard about that. Uh, so. No police officer has ever done that in all the accidents I have been in. I got shotgun, and he put Felipe in the back. So he goes, drives down to Markley Road, turns around, comes back, and I don't know if Felipe was understanding what was going on, because I don't think he spoke very good English. He was sitting like this in the cop car, leaning forward, listening to what was going on. I don't think he said anything. That whole reenactment thing? That struck me as weird, too. On the other hand, it could be seen as diligent police work. Ryan asked a Collier County Sheriff's Office investigator about it. That was certainly not standard procedure, he told Ryan, but it wouldn't set off alarm bells. Then when he went to drop me off, my supervisor was there to pick me up to take me to work. So I just got out of the car, said, am I good to go? He said, yes, I got in the supervisor's car and left. Camille's car had a flat tire after the crash, so she left it there. She still carries some guilt for her role on that morning. Felipe had offered her money not to call the cops. Thinking back, I should have took the money and ran. If I would have known, but we don't have a crystal ball to tell us what's going to happen in the future. She didn't see Calkins arrest or handcuff Felipe, but she assumed Calkins would take Felipe to jail. So did Felipe's brothers, Jorge and Salvador, who saw Calkins put Felipe in the patrol car. Certainly, these were logical conclusions. Felipe was driving without a license and without insurance. The Santos family grew concerned when Felipe didn't return home. They grew even more concerned when they checked the jail, said Julia Perkins with the Coalition of Immokalee Workers. She and the coalition have helped advocate for the family. They started to get answers about where he wasn't, right? He wasn't in jail. He wasn't in any of the local hospitals. There wasn't any more information. I think as that developed, they started to get more and more worried. 
Right, where then could he be? This question would go unanswered. There has never been another confirmed sighting of Felipe Santos since he was seen in Deputy Calkins' patrol car. But why did the police initially think that Felipe had fled the country? And why was his family so convinced that he didn't? Some of the most compelling moments in The Last Ride are the recordings of polygraph sessions with and interrogations of then-deputy Stephen Calkins. Listeners hear how Calkins was questioned about his failure to report the traffic stop with Terrence Williams. Records show that Calkins did not radio the traffic stop in as required by policy, nor did he enter it into his mobile data terminal. A sheriff's sergeant asked why Calkins didn't initially report his interactions with Terrence. I was in a hurry. I was going to the substation. It was my time of the day to go to the sub. That's why I keep saying it was around noon. I know it was around noonish. I don't check out the stuff sometimes the way I should. There's a lot of radio traffic this time of the year. I'm old-fashioned. It's a bad habit of mine. Not getting on the radio right away on things, but... Calkins told me in an interview several years ago that he didn't report giving Terrence a ride because he was having a busy day and wanted to get to lunch. However, dispatch records show he did report other calls that day. During a third polygraph session, the interviewer begins to push back on Calkins' inability to answer whether Williams was with him when he called in for an ID. Out of all the things I asked you in here today, was Terrence with you when you ran his April 1st, 1975 date of birth over your next cell? That's the question that you can't answer. And when you do say no to it, you're not telling us the truth about it. Maybe it's not a yes or no answer. Maybe it's an I don't know. I can't see how it can be or I can't remember. He wants you to tell us the truth about it so that when you're I answering the questions, the not to this. You told the truth right along. You guys. You told you told the truth about some you. things, but not told about this. About everything. Steve, you had a lot of time to sit back and think about it. You know, <laughs> the whole day was insignificant to me until then. The questioning took a darker turn. The fact is that every time we ask you a question, we have to go back and get clarification. And every time we have to go back and get clarification, it makes it look like you're trying to hide something. And if you're trying to hide this, what else are you trying to hide? Do we got a body laying around in the sticks somewhere that we don't know about? I mean, are we going to be clearing, are we going to be widening, you know, Immokalee Road down through uh, Wiggins Pass someday and all of a sudden find out that we got a dead body out there? You know, I don't think any one of us want to sit here and say that that's the case. But you have to look at it from an outsider's point of view. I mean, we're working, like it's worth any case, to prove what you're telling us is truthful. If what you're telling us is truthful, then you should not be having a problem, Steve. You know, I mean, I don't know what to tell you. The only thing we're trying to do is make sure that what you're telling us is the truth. I think I've told you everything I'm going to tell you. Okay, well, I've, I've told you everything I can think of. Well, obviously not to everything. The examiner issued his official findings. Deception indicated. That was Janine Zeitlin, host of the podcast The Last Ride from USA Today Network Florida and WGCU Public Media. You can find all eight episodes wherever you get your podcasts. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. Brandi Clark made a name for herself, writing songs for country music stars like Reba McIntyre and Miranda Lambert. But she's gained a claim on her own, too, with a trio of well-received solo albums. 
She's got a new self-titled album out, and music writer and NPR music contributor Brittany McKenna says it's her most personal yet. As you listen to the album, you really start to hear some personal details that give us a little bit more insight into the artist behind the music that we've loved for all these years. There ain't enough rocks to drown that pain Ain't enough water to sink that shame It might have broke her heart, couldn't break her soul This is Ain't Enough Rocks, the first song on the album, and I just feel like it's a perfect example of Brandy's truly masterful ability to write a story song. Sheriff knocking on the front door, third day night clocking in. Girl said he went on a bender, and they hadn't seen him since. Cops blamed it on his liver, so they never drug the river. Those girls don't even shiver when they're fishing off that dock. Slide guitar virtuoso Derek Trucks also joins in on the proceedings with his searing slide licks almost sounding like crackling lightning in a nighttime storm. Buried is my personal favorite song on the record. We hear a lot of heartbreak songs in country music, but there's something about this one that, to me, just feels especially heartbreaking. We hear Clark addressing a former love, and it's so powerful when she allows her voice to break at the beginning of each chorus when she's offering up strings of hypotheticals. If you're beyond me With Clark being a notably out queer woman, that kind of adds another layer of devastation to some of the lyrics. Security really feels like the beating heart of this album. That's partially because both Clark and producer Brandy Carlisle are able to come together for a duet on this one. If I can't find a way to get you gone, can we find a way to get along, along, along? It's just lovely to hear their voices together. But it also adds to this rich tradition, mostly upheld by women in country music, of kind of bearing one's soul, warts and all. That was NPR music contributor Brittany McKenna talking about Brandy Clark's new self-titled album. This is NPR News. Thanks for spending time with us on 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Coming to City Space Tuesday, May 30th, 
Chef Sisters Margaret and Irene Lee to discuss their new cookbook focused on cooking flexibility and fighting food waste. Tickets at WBUR.org slash events. The time is 5.39, coming up at 6 on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. We play a game called Queen Charlotte Meet Dairy Queen. That's coming up at 6 on the radio and anytime on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Evita at ART. Don't keep your distance from the beloved Tony Award-winning musical about the life of Argentina's Eva Perón. Now through July 16th, amrep.org. And BU School of Social Work, top-ranked part-time MSW programs in Bedford, Fall River, Worcester, and Cape Cod. bu.edu ssw. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. Sporadic fighting was reported around Khartoum in Sudan today, ahead of another internationally brokered temporary ceasefire due to go into effect tomorrow. Many earlier attempts at a ceasefire have failed, though. Pope Francis is urging the warring sides to find a more permanent peace. The Conservative Party of Greek Prime Minister Kyriakos Mitsotakis won a landslide election, but without enough parliamentary seats to form a government. And in Northern California, authorities are working to recover a small plane that went down off the coast of Half Moon Bay, killing the two people on board this weekend. The plane was heading to Hawaii, and word on the cause of the crash. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the hiring process. Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at Indeed.com slash NPR. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sarah McCammon. And I'm going to hand things over now to NPR's Rachel Martin for another conversation in her series called Enlighten Me. For me, running is like meditation. Sometimes I listen to music, but mostly I just listen to what's happening around me. Take it in, let it wash over me. Another breath, another block, another mile. Simranjit Singh used to run around NYU in New York when he was teaching religion courses there. He's a Sikh, so he wears a turban. It's like a second skin to him, but other people notice. And sometimes, as you're about to hear, the noticing turns ugly. As I'm running, I I hear someone shouting uh, with with a few colorful adjectives. They're saying, effing Osama, effing Osama. To you. This is directed at you. That's right. Yeah, yelling at me. And and I had my headphones in, so I, I kind of heard it. I heard it enough. I could have ignored it. I usually do in situations like this. Mm-hmm. And as I'm running by, I look at this person who's yelling at me. And it's a kid. I mean, he's probably 18 or 20 years old the same age as my students. He's with a couple of friends and he's laughing. Um, But I I stopped and and I I went up to him and um, he put up his hand and sort of waved me off uh, because he wanted to dismiss me. And I said, no, actually, we're going to have a little conversation about this. 
I could see he's just trying to get out of the conversation, hoping it would be over. But he was a person of color. And I mentioned to him as I was just reflecting, I said, you know, I'm guessing you know what it's like for people to say these kinds of things and, and how hurtful it can be. And just that connection, I mean, I, I saw his eyes change. Totally went from distance into sincerity. And that was it, right? And he just shook my hand. He, he said, I'm so sorry. And I was like, I appreciate that. And I went on my run and he went back to his friends. And it's not like I feel like I changed the world in that moment. And I, I don't even think, you know, I changed the trajectory of this person's life, right? That's that's not the point. Um, but it totally changed my day. And it's it's actually really changed the way that I try and handle situations like this when it's appropriate. I wanted to talk with Simran Jeet Singh because I knew he'd written a lot about how to see people as better than their worst moments or their most harmful choices. We all have people in our lives who have hurt us or those we love. How do we see beyond that damage? Simran wrote a book called The Light We Give, How Seek Wisdom Can Transform Your Life. And in it, he talks about the transformation that happened to him after a tragedy. On August 5th, 2012, a 40-year-old white man named Wade Michael Page opened fire inside a Sikh temple in Oak Creek, Wisconsin. He killed six people on the scene. A seventh person died of their wounds in 2020. Now, Simran wasn't there. He didn't know any of the victims personally, but this was a racist attack from an avowed white supremacist who had targeted his faith and his culture. Simran felt helpless as he watched the news unfold when he was at a friend's apartment in New York City. Just a heads up, you're going to hear Simran use the Punjabi pronunciation of his religion and those who practice it. So rather than Sikhism or Sikhs, you're going to hear him say Sikhism and Sikhs. It was one of those mornings where the details remain etched in your heart and in your mind forever. I got a call from my mom and she said, turn on the TV, turn on the news. And we did. And it was an active shooter situation. These are people that you feel connected to, and they're going through such suffering, and there's nothing you can really do about it. As we were planning to head home, my wife and I, we asked ourselves, uh, you know, do we feel safe walking? And maybe we shouldn't leave the apartment where we were. And part of the experience of, of all of this is how fear can start to control our lives. And so we we made the conscious decision, and this is one of the, the core tenets of the Sikh philosophy um, that we, in that moment, embraced, that we chose to live into. In our scripture, it's called Nidbo, fearlessness. And that was something that we intentionally chose that afternoon. Uh, and it's something that the Oak Creek community in Wisconsin uh, really embodied in the days and weeks that followed. I mean, they to the point where they even had t-shirts made that said nidbo nidavad, meaning no fear, no hate. Those are such different ideas too, because you can live without fear. You can say, we refuse you know, to, to change how we live, how we worship, who we are, despite this hideous thing. But to not give into anger and hate is like another bridge. <laughs> and you know, at, at first, I, I let that anger sit, um, and I was I was okay with it. I mean, I I didn't love that I was angry, but I thought it was fine and and it felt appropriate. But as the anger continued to consume me, I started to realize that 
the person who I was angry at was gone. He had taken his own life at the end of the massacre. So my anger was not going to have any impact on him. And all it was doing to me was eating me up from the inside. I mean, it just felt so corrosive. And, and that's when I started to realize that, you know, there's there's a choice I can make here, that, that anger may feel like a natural reaction, but it's not the only option in situations like these. You know, as someone who has grown up in this country looking different and being a target of hate, you know, I have a turban, I have a beard, I have brown skin, and I'm, I'm often on the receiving end of people's bigotry. And part of what I've learned is to not take it so personally, right? To, to know that other people's anger is their problem. It's not mine. Mm -hmm. But also mm -hmm. to realize that it can be my problem if those people can't control it. So what changed for you? Because you were somehow able to, well, not forgive him, mm. right? There was no forgiveness, but there was a letting go. Yeah. I mean, maybe maybe letting go is not even the right word, um, mm. but forgiving definitely did not feel appropriate. I mean, he, he didn't apologize. He took his own life. Right. And, and I know for a lot of people and, and in many traditions, forgiveness is important. And I appreciate that. Uh, but for me, this really wasn't about forgiveness. I think, you know, what What I really struggle with in this country is so often forgiveness is expected from those who are on the margins and over and over again in contexts of racial violence, right? Like Dylan Roof in South Carolina, the immediate conversation was, well, if these are real Christians, they'll forgive him. And I, I don't think that's a fair expectation to put on people. Dylan Roof, of course, was the white man who killed nine black people inside the Mother Emanuel Amy Church in 2015 in Charleston. That's right. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't think it's a fair expectation uh, for us to put on others. And um, I don't even know if necessarily um, that's the that's the solution to our suffering. And I, I, I personally haven't had the experience that that's the way to go. But I've developed a few strategies over the years, drawing from Sikh philosophy on how to deal with those moments. One is to get to know the person. I found that if you can know someone, you can really come to humanize them. And so I tried that with this individual, this killer. And I found that the more I got to know him, uh, the less I felt connected to him. I mean, it, it, the strategy just didn't work. I read about his background. I read the white supremacist message boards. He was, I mean, I, I just read everything I could. And I was like, this guy has nothing in common with me. The real sort of revelation moment came when I was talking to young sick kids at a camp in New York. And the parents had asked me to lead a session with them about the massacre. And I, <laughs> I did not want to. Uh, I didn't have kids at the time. And so I wasn't even sure how to talk to, you know, five, six-year-olds about this kind of violence. The big point of revelation in this conversation came when I asked kids, why did Wade Michael Page kill these people? Their immediate recounting was that this man was evil, that he killed because he was an evil person. And that struck me because evil is not a concept that we give much attention to in Sikh philosophy. We don't even believe in evil. And we certainly don't believe that people are evil. Mm -hmm. But I also realized that this is essentially how I had been thinking about this person, right? All of these terms I'd been using, like racist and white supremacist and so on, they were all code. 
for my own way of thinking about him as evil. That shocking moment really had me step back and reflect on, well, what is it that I believe? But I don't actually believe he was an evil person. What, what do I believe about this person, about how someone, how a human being could commit this kind of atrocity uh, against another human being? Like, what could enable that? And that question pushed me, I mean, all within the context of this conversation with the kids, uh, to really go back to basic Sikh teachings. The core idea is we all have the same light. We're all interconnected, uh, that we all have a shared sense of humanity. And we are able to hurt one another when we fail to see that light. Mm. This is, am I saying this right? This is Vahiguru? Vahiguru is the term that we use for divinity. Yeah. And there are different ways in which we would describe it. But, but one of them that I really love, I'll share with you from Sikh scripture. And this is what I shared with these kids uh, as it was as the conversation was developing, um, is this teaching It says, first God created the light and all the people of the world. So if everyone comes from the same light, how can we say anyone is good or anyone is bad? It's essentially saying there's no place for judgment. There's no place for discrimination. This is a core teaching in Sikh philosophy. And part of what I realized in this process was as I was thinking about this white supremacist, I was so judgmental of him. I mean, I had developed the same kind of supremacist thinking that I was upset with him for, right? Like I thought I was better than him as a human being. I thought I was more divine or had more light inside of me or however you want to describe it. I just thought I was better than him at the end of the day. But can't, can't we agree that you didn't murder people? Like... <laughs> Like, doesn't that make you a better person? <laughs> I think we can get in trouble if we start to say there's no morality, there's nothing wrong and nothing right. But I don't think that our ability to live in certain ways necessarily means we're better than other people. You know, it's so interesting growing up, the one thing that I found most frustrating and the biggest turnoff about religion when was when people thought they were better than you, right? And maybe it's because I grew up in Texas and there's there's a lot of that kind of judgment. Mm -hmm. The holier than thou kind of mentality, it just always rubbed me the wrong way. Mm -hmm. And I never really understood why it was particularly unacceptable to me until I really started to think about this relationship that I, I mean, a very one-sided relationship because this man was dead. But this relationship that I was developing with this man uh, in, in tr trying to see his humanity and learning mm -hmm. that really if I wanted to see him as equally divine, um, then I had to get over this assumption that just because he did horrible things means that he's a monster or he's inhuman and he doesn't deserve the same kind of dignity as everyone else. It's a hard thing, I think, for a lot of people, myself included, to wrap your head around. Um, it's really bold, <laughs> you know, um, that that idea and the effort you put towards it to to try to discover and to to meditate on this person's 
humanity and that you had the space to conceive of him as both good and evil, right? I mean, I think for a lot of people who come from a Christian tradition like myself, it is this binary, right? Like you grow up with this idea, there are good people, there are bad people, the good and the evil, and opening yourself up to the idea that we are both things, that all of us contain the good and the bad, the dark and the light is, is useful. I hear you when you say it sounds hard because I, it is hard. It was hard. It's, it's still hard for me. I mean, there are all sorts of people that I encounter uh, personally and from a distance who I look at and I'm like, it's not as easy for me to see the goodness in you, for me to see the light in you. I, I despise the things that you stand for. I despise the way that you treat people. I mean, there, there are all kinds of people who do terrible things and, and the very simple practice, the starting place is to, is to take 10 seconds each day and, and see the humanity in someone who is different from yourself, right? And you can start with the easy places, family members, friends, colleagues, coworkers. Um, but once you get through that list um, and you need to find someone else, then, then you'll start seeing strangers, um, people who you've never noticed before, uh, people who you wouldn't otherwise connect with. And, and what I found through this practice is that actually the strangeness starts to go away and it's through this you know 10 seconds every day finding someone it doesn't have to be super cheesy you don't have to lock eyes with them and stare <laughs> stare at them uh, but just just notice notice someone who, who you don't notice usually so many of the assumptions that we make about one another are born out of ignorance a closed offness in our culture and i just have found that by opening ourselves up we can help open up one another. And that's where the exchange really begins and we can really start to see one another's humanity. That was Simran Jeet Singh speaking with NPR's Rachel Martin. This conversation is part of her new series called Enlighten Me, where Rachel explores what it takes to build a life of meaning. You can hear more right here, same time 